The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and our sermon series is inverted today because of that fiasco that we had two weeks ago on Sunday morning when in the middle of my sermon I had to, I had to uh, stop because we had to evacuate the building. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever experienced a more disconcerting time of preaching than when Jason raised his hand in the back and said, shut it down, we've got to shut it down now. And then only to find out later it wasn't necessary, he just wanted to go home. But, uh, but yes, we, we, had to, we had to stop the services. We had a representative here from PG&E, and he's walking around the back of the building and then walked up the side of the building. He's taking carbon monoxide readings. Then in the back there, we had the men that were standing and discussing what was going on, and they were speaking loudly enough for me to hear what they were saying up here. And then we had the doors open to the outside and the traffic that was going on so that we'd kind of air the building out so nobody would suffocate while all that was happening. And so uh, it made concentration very difficult. And it was hard up here preaching to try to get across to you what needed to be said. And I think it was very hard for you to listen as well. So we stopped in the middle of that sermon and we think, well, what are we supposed to do with this sermon now? It's halfway through. It's not complete. So what do we do? So I decided that what we would do is to review uh, some of the comments that were made in the first part of the sermon. Then we would resume with the middle of the sermon and, and then finish it out. So what you're hearing tonight is an abbreviated version of the first part of uh, that sermon two weeks ago. And attached to it is the last part that you didn't get to hear. So I chose to invert the sermons today because this one will be a shorter sermon than normal. Maybe. Uh, you know, you never know how that goes. It might be a shorter sermon than normal. And that's supposed to, the reason I did it was kind of work in with uh, uh, the fact that we have to have our annual business meeting right after uh, church this afternoon. So that's, that's why I kind of decided to move things around. And, and then for some folks that don't come on, on uh, Sunday mornings to get to hear, or, uh, Sunday afternoons rather, we get to hear what we're doing on Sunday, in the Sunday afternoon services and studying the tabernacle. So we're looking again at this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I have two more sermons on this text before we move into chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open, I'd, I'd like us to read this familiar text again, then we'll make a few comments and then finish out part number two of this sermon, The Comfort of Christ's Coming. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians, rather, chapter 4, verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now to help you fill out your listening sheet again, we've, we've covered this material already in the previous part of this sermon. We began by talking about the sorrowing saints. That's point number one of your outline. The sorrowing saints. Paul wrote in verse number 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as those which have no hope. Now the problem in the Thessalonian church was they were mired in misunderstanding about the return of Christ. Now we've taught previously how that Paul uh, taught them that, that the coming of Christ is an imminent return, simply meaning, of course, that Christ can come at any time. And the Bible teaches that there isn't any signs that we are to look for. There's nothing that will tell us that Christ is going to come. Uh, there are no prophetic events that need to be fulfilled before Christ will return to the earth. In fact, his appearance in the rapture that we read about in this text is the next prophetic event. Christ coming back, that's the next event of prophecy. And the Bible doesn't tell us the day or the hour that Christ will come, but it does tell us that we are to wait for his coming with hopeful expectation and earnest expectation that, yes, indeed, Christ can come at any time. He can come today. Uh, it might be tomorrow. It may be in your lifetime. But for some reason, what the Thessalonians heard when Paul taught these things was that the promise of an imminent return to them meant that it was a sure thing. That absolutely for sure, Christ will return in our lifetime. So what happens, they wonder, if, if some people die before Christ returns? If they were looking for the coming of Christ and Paul had taught them that Christ is coming with his kingdom and you're going to rule and reign in his kingdom, then what happens to all those Christians that die before Christ comes? Are they going to have a part of the kingdom or will they miss out it, on it? So that was a very grave concern, no pun intended, but it was a very grave concern and that misunderstanding caused them to be sorrowful, even to the point of despair. So Paul starts here by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. I don't want you to be ignorant about the coming of the Lord. We ought not to lack understanding on this because your misunderstanding makes you look like pagans. It makes you look like people that have no hope at all. You appear as those who have no hope. And so this portion of Scripture was written to explain and to alleviate this problem of hopelessness, of misunderstanding about the return of Christ. And so Paul teaches, yes, there is still hope for believers that die. Whether you are alive or whether you are dead at the coming of Christ, that has no bearing on the status of anyone who lives and dies as a believer. Both are going to have their part in the kingdom. So Paul deals with the issue of their sorrow, and he tells them, perk up, be cheerful about this, understand this, don't be concerned about Christians that die in the Lord. And don't worry that you might die before Christ comes, because either way, whether you're living or you're dead at the coming of Christ, you, if you are a believer in Christ, you will be a part of that glorious kingdom. So he teaches to expect the return, live for Christ's return, and use the hope of his return 
to spur you on to godly, holy living. Now, if you look in your Bible there back at chapter 3, verse number 13, he, he says, to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And that's a theme that's repeated throughout the New Testament epistles, that our expectation of Christ's return, that he will come in our lifetime, believing that, believing in an imminent return, that's always intended to wake us up. It's always intended, intended to, to make us think about that if Christ should come at any time, then how should I be living? What, what do I want Christ to find when he comes back? What do I want him to see in my life and how I'm living for him? And so always the return of Christ is to cause God's people to live holy lives. And really, this is what the scripture talks about when it means to be ready. To be ready for Christ's return isn't to sit on a mountain somewhere and look for the skies to open up and Christ will come peeking and peeking through the skies. That's not what it means to be ready. To be ready for Christ's return is to be prepared in godliness and holiness and living a life that's pleasing to him when he does appear. Well, we go on now to explore more of why Paul says they should have hope. In verse number 13, he refers to those that died in the Lord, and he says they are asleep. So there are sorrowing saints. Paul takes care of that problem. Then he addresses the next one. That is the sleeping saints. Number two is the sleeping saints. I would not have you ignorant concerning them which are asleep. Now, he tells them that those that, that die in Christ are not in their final state. Their bodies are only sleeping. The body dies and it goes into the grave, but the body won't stay in the grave. Now, this word that he uses for asleep here, the term asleep, is the same word from which we get cemetery. That's really what a cemetery is. That's what the word means. It means a sleeping place. And we get that word way back from ancient times because of the influence of Christianity. That a cemetery is a sleeping place. So the term sleep or, or sleeping is used to refer to the dead because that relates to our common experience. It's part of what gives us hope that builds our comfort in death. At night we go to sleep and we never think, well, I'm not going to wake up in the morning. Now, when you go to bed at night, you're, you fully do believe that the next morning you will get up. The sun comes up and you'll awaken from sleep. And so that analogy is used in the scriptures to compare to the dead in Christ. That the body goes into grave, into the grave to sleep, but one day there's going to be this glorious awakening. There will be a resurrection. And when the sun comes, and not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, when the glorious sun comes, Christ is there to awaken all the dead bodies that are sleeping. Now, part of what you might not have heard in all the commotion that went on uh, two weeks ago, is that it's very important that we distinguish which part of the believer is asleep. Now, all of us know that, that the body is not the only part of man. There is also a soul. There's body and soul. And it's very important that we understand when we talk about being asleep, are we talking about the body? Are we talking about the soul? Are we talking about both? It's only the body that sleeps according to the word of God. 
that soul of man, the soul of man, the immaterial part of a person doesn't go to sleep at death. But the soul is always fully conscious. It's not the soul of a person that goes into the grave. Now we looked at Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who was stoned after he testified to the Jewish council about uh, belief in Christ. And I'm not going to read all of that story again, but I do want to read just a couple of verses from Acts chapter 7 where it says, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, or Stephen was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen prayed that Christ would receive his spirit. Then it says he fell asleep. Now that sleep refers to his body, while his soul, the very part that he was praying about, asking Christ to receive his body, he died, his body died, it fell asleep, as the scripture says, but his soul departed to go to be with Christ in heaven. Remember when uh, Jesus was crucified that there was a thief on one side of him and there's one thief that put his faith in Christ and Jesus said to him today you will be with me in paradise now the thief's body would die on the cross but the eternal soul of that thief would be in paradise in heaven with Christ Paul wrote in 2nd Corinthians uh, 5 verse 8 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so there's no thought ever that the soul is anything other than fully conscious when you die. And so when you die, your body will go into the grave, the body will rest, it will go to sleep, but your soul is already gone to be with Christ in heaven. Now I also mentioned in that, in that uh, first part of the sermon uh, about the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. So I want to pick up the message at that point and add to it a little bit of information to the comments that I made about Lazarus. Now we know the story from John 11, how that Lazarus was sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, went looking for Jesus and found him and then pleaded that Jesus would come and heal their brother. Now we ought not to think for even a moment that Jesus didn't already know about Lazarus' sickness. Well, the sickness was actually by design so that Jesus could, could show his power over death and that he could teach us something about the resurrection of the body. So Mary and Martha went to see Jesus and they asked him to come quickly. But Jesus didn't come quickly. Instead, he delayed and during that delay, Lazarus died. Now, Jesus purposely waited until Lazarus died. Now, we notice what Jesus said in John 11, verses 11 through 13. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of his taken, uh, uh, taken his rest in sleep. So Lazarus died, his body was dead, but Jesus said, you don't need to worry about that because I'm going to go there and I'm going to awaken Lazarus out of sleep. And what he meant was that he was going to raise Lazarus' dead body. And this is what Jesus did. He went to the tomb, there he was at the tomb of Lazarus, and what came out of that tomb? 
Lazarus, his body came out of the tomb. The sleeping body was raised. Jesus said he's not dead. He is asleep. Well, related to that issue, um, after I'd spoken about this uh, on that Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, I got a question from Brian Petro for the form class. And he asked, where was Lazarus' soul before Jesus brought him back to life? Lazarus died. What happened to his soul? Where did it go? Because the soul had to come back into the body. Where was it? Well, that's a very important question. And it, it does figure into the reason that Jesus delayed and waited until Lazarus had been dead for four days before he raised him. Now, that four days that you read in the scripture about Jesus' delay is a very specific time. It's an intended time. It's a very important time. It's not random time. Jesus purposely waited four days. Now, the delay concerns the disposition of the soul. The Jews didn't believe that death was final until at least four days had passed because the spirit of the dead person, they believed, would remain around the body, and then after four days, the spirit would leave. So Jesus waited four days, and he waited for the body to begin to decay so that no one could claim that Lazarus wasn't dead. No one would be able to say, well, that spirit was still there, the spirit's still around the body, so there's no miracle here. Lazarus wasn't really dead. Now, Jesus did not intend to affirm any kind of belief that the spirit hangs around the body after a person dies, but he purposely waited that four days so he would remove all excuses that the Jews might have to say there's no miracle here. No, they must believe the miracle. And in fact, they did believe it. Lazarus became indisputable proof of Jesus' power over death. The Jewish leaders hated Lazarus as much as they did Jesus. Because every time that they saw Lazarus, here is an affirmation that Jesus must be the Son of God. Now, certainly they believe that only God has the power of life. And so now you have a walking, breathing testimony. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. So where was Lazarus' spirit during that time? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We can only know the answer to the question by inference because the Bible never speaks of disembodied spirits that are floating around with no place to go. Now, for some of you folks that might be afraid of ghosts and spirits of dead people, you don't need to worry about it because the Bible never gives any kind of indication that there are such things as disembodied spirits of people that float around, go, any, go anywhere, do anything. They go to their destination as soon as a person dies. And so according to the scriptures, the only thing that we can say about the disposition of the soul, if a believer, when a believer dies, as Lazarus did, his soul went to heaven. So where was uh, Lazarus during that time, the spirit of Lazarus? Well, it went to heaven. Now Lazarus' soul must have gone to heaven, and then it was recalled by Jesus to come and re-inhabit his body. And so it must have been that God wiped away all recollection of heaven from him when that spirit came back in. And so Lazarus uh, apparently wouldn't have known anything about his soul being in heaven because Jesus or God took all of that away. And so we, we come to that conclusion because one thing we know the Bible never teaches, it never teaches that the soul goes to sleep. And in fact, you would have the same problem for all resurrections that you read about in the Bible. Even going back into the Old Testament where there were resurrections, this would be a problem. 
you may remember the story of how there was a man that died and he was thrown into a pit with Elisha's bones. And he touched the bones of Elisha and suddenly that man came back to life. We might ask the same question. Well, where was his spirit? He was a dead man and then the spirit came back in. Where was that spirit during that time? Well, we do know this, that the spirit had left the body because the body was dead and the spirit coming back into the body was the energizing force. That's the thing that made the man come back to life. So the story of Lazarus is a power or an indication of, of the power of Jesus over death. And it was intended to show us that, that he has the power to raise us from the dead. And, of course, that he has the power, would have the power to raise his own body after he was crucified. So only God has the power of life. The Jews knew that so truthfully they couldn't do anything other than to admit that Jesus was God. Now, these comments about sleeping saints are intended to tie into the bodily resurrection of believers at the last day. In verse number 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, there he tells us where the soul is at death. The soul is with Christ. The soul is in heaven. And the soul will come back with Christ to rejoin the body in the resurrection. So the guarantee of our resurrection, uh, uh, the resurrection of our bodies is tied to this. It's the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Looking there again at verse 14, Paul said, If we believe Jesus died and rose again. Now that's not to say that you may or may not believe this. That you can be a Christian and you may or may not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now this if that we see here is an if of surety. In other words, he's saying since we believe this or because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then it follows this must also be true. There will be a resurrection of those who believe in him. So that those that sleep in Jesus will be brought back with him. Their, their souls will be brought back to be rejoined to their bodies. And, and they will come out of the graves. The bodies will come out of the graves at the announcement that Jesus has returned. And then those souls will re-enter the body. So Paul's telling them, you don't need to worry about this. Don't worry about people that die. Don't worry if you die before Christ comes. You'll not miss any of his kingdom. Those that are alive, he tells us, have no advantage over you uh, if you've died. Likewise, you have no advantage over them if you're living when Christ comes, except this. You didn't have to go to the cemetery. You didn't have to die. Maybe that's an advantage, but that's not, there's no practical ramification there at all for the status of a person in the kingdom, whether living or dead, at the time of Christ's return. Now, there is another point that I want to make concerning the state of the soul, that the passage is intended to bring comfort to the people, and there is comfort in this to know that when you die, your soul is awake, that your soul is conscious at death, that your soul is never going to go to sleep. Now, we see this in another passage of Scripture when uh, Jesus was talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, this time we're talking, of course, about a different Lazarus, but he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that's in Luke chapter 16. 
And there, there's a conversation that goes on. The resurrection hasn't yet happened. And there you have a rich man in hell, and you have Lazarus who is in heaven. And both of them are fully conscious at that time before the resurrection. But what we find when we talk about comfort, and the reason that Paul has to deal with the issue of comfort, and why there is a problem of confusion that that discomforts us, is that this is what the devil wants to do. He always wants to ruin your comfort, make you uncomfortable about what will happen when you die. Now, I want to show you this. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Uh, Earlier, I mentioned the thief on the cross, and this is the story of the thief. And I just want to look at one verse here, verse number 43. And we're going to take a, a close look at it because I want to show you what people do with the Scriptures to try to twist them, uh, and the devil tries to twist the scripture to ruin your comfort. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. There's no comfort in thinking that your soul is going to be asleep or drifting somewhere is not in heaven. So here in verse uh, 43 of Luke 23, Jesus speaks to the thief on the cross, and he says to him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There are people who teach that the soul sleeps. The Jehovah Witnesses teach that the soul sleeps. And here is a verse that's very problematic for them because Jesus said, this day, that is today, you will be with me in paradise. So if the soul sleeps, that means that Jesus would be a soul sleeper too. Otherwise, there was no way that he could say they would be together on that day. But whether it's a Jehovah Witness or or who it is, I've never heard of anybody who believes that Jesus' soul went to sleep. Jesus' soul did not go to sleep. So the Jehovah Witnesses need to do something with this verse. I want you to understand that even the punctuation of your translation is very important. You can change the meaning of this verse without even changing the words. You only need to change the punctuation. Now, the New World Translation of the Jehovah Witnesses changes the comma in this verse and places it after today rather than before. Now, I want you to see it on the screen in their version. Uh, And he said unto him, truly I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Compare that to what you see there in verse 43 above it. Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see how the meaning of that changes? He said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, that was a, would be, I would call, a, a very stupid translation. Of course he told him on that day. He couldn't have told him on any other day. But that's what you, you have here is a deceiver's trick. That the deceiver says, Jesus said, I'm telling you this today. I'm telling this today. In other words, someday... You'll be with me in paradise. I'm telling you today. Someday you'll be with me in paradise. That's not what the scripture says, does it? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This day you're going to be with me. Now the JWs also have a a problem with Luke 8.49. Now I'd like you to turn there and we'll read this as well. This is the account of the raising of Jairus' daughter. And these scriptures give us proof of the condition that you'll be in should you die before Christ comes, what is going to happen to your body and your soul? 
We look at Luke 8, verse number 49. While he yet spake, that is, while Jairus spoke, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again. And she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. Now, contrary to the JWs, it's the body. It was the body of the girl that was asleep. Her spirit hadn't gone missing, and her spirit wasn't there, and her spirit wasn't asleep. The spirit had departed her body, and then when Jesus raised her, the spirit returned and then went back into her body. Oh, he said, what does that do for us? Well, what does that say to us? Well, it refutes the JW's belief in, in two areas. First of all, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a spiritual resurrection only. They do not believe in the resurrection of the body. When very clearly, Jesus here raised her body. It also refutes that the spirit is asleep. Because here the spirit was gone. The spirit is someplace else. And then the spirit came back and went into her body. So when, when, the, when the Bible speaks of the Christian sleeping, it's always speaking of the body and never of the soul. And so in this, in this text, Paul takes care of sorrowing saints, and then he deals with the sleeping saints. But there's still more for us to learn. Now thirdly, he speaks of the surviving saints. The surviving saints. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep. So there are surviving saints, people that will be alive, uh, alive when Jesus comes. Now, we can attach another word to these surviving saints. We can also call them the snatched saints. They're snatched. Uh, we'll explain that the next time. We're not going to look at that tonight. Uh, what I want to do, though, uh, before we get into that, that'll come up uh, next week and next Sunday morning, before we get into that, I want to talk to you about this first phrase in verse number 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now the passage here in 1 Thessalonians is so direct, there isn't much wiggle room to dispute Paul's teachings. Oh yes, there are people that have quibbles over small details, but there aren't too many passages in Scripture that are as easy for us to deal with than this one. When you find some kind of a controversy, like, like uh, soul sleeping, that needs to be read into the text, because that's not here. That, that's something that needs to be invented. Well, it turns out this phrase, uh, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, causes people to scurry about the Bible looking for a place where Jesus said this. Did Jesus say this? In Acts 20.35, Paul said, I want you to remember the words of the Lord. Do you remember this verse? I want, you, I want you to remember the words of the Lord. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you heard that? That's in the scriptures. Paul said, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But you can take your Bible, you can search it cover to cover, 
And you'll not find a place where Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul gives us that information. And so we look at this. You'll not find these words anyplace else. Where did Jesus say, We which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Where is that? Now, the record that we have of those things that Jesus said are, are mostly, mostly in the gospel accounts. Is that not right? The gospel accounts. That's the story of Christ's life. The synoptic gospels say nothing at all about this entire passage because the synoptic gospels deal mostly with the kingdom age, not with the rapture. Now, let's understand for a minute, what do, what do we mean by synoptic? Well, that's a word that simply means that they say the same thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. They say the same thing. That is, they deal with the, the same basic information about Jesus' life and death. On the other hand, the gospel of John is a non-synoptic gospel. His gospel is not standardized with the others. And what John does is give different information. It's not contrary information, but it's different. It's, it's additional information about the life of Christ. Now, John very specifically stated that his gospel was written for a purpose, and it was to prove his one main point, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if you believe in him, you'll have life through his name. You'll find that in John chapter 20. That's his purpose of writing the gospel. And so John selected certain events out of all of those things that Christ did and, and uh, certain miracles to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, it happens that there is just a hint of the rapture in John's gospel. This will be found in John chapter 14. You're mostly familiar with this. I, most of you are. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to repair a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I don't know if we could very strictly call that a rapture text. We know it applies, since we understand First Thessalonians. And so if this is a rapture text... This is the closest that we can come in all the gospel accounts to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. Obviously, it's not nearly as specific as what Paul wrote there. And so, in any case, in any way that we look at this, it is not recorded in Scripture that Jesus said what Paul said he said. So how are we going to account for that? What are we going to do with that when Paul says, I am speaking to you by the word of the Lord? Well, what it must mean is that this was spoken directly to Paul, either by Jesus or through the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this is one of the ways that he got information. In verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, those of you who know the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you know that it's filled with much information that you don't find in other places of Scripture. In verse 51, he said, We shall not all sleep. And that's a reference to the living at the rapture. There's nobody that had this information about the body of the living and the dead in Christ. Only Paul has this information, or at least none of the other apostles taught about it. 
So where did he get that information? Verse number three says, he received it. I delivered unto you what I received. Now, I want to show you something else that's, that's peculiar in Paul's knowledge that others didn't know. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of of his power. Now, the mystery that Paul is speaking of here is the mystery of the church. You can read through the entire Old Testament and you'll never find any information about the church. The Gentiles were put into the church with equality with the Jews. And so that's, that's a mystery. That was a mystery until Paul was given special revelation of that. And so Paul becomes the foremost apologist of church doctrine. Now again, if you'll listen to what he says in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he said, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which have preached of me is not after man, for neither I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there Paul made it clear that what he knew was not taught to him by the apostles. And it was very important for him to say that because... What it did was to establish his authority as an apostle. He came later than the other apostles that Jesus chose. And so to establish his authority, he says, I was taught directly and immediately by Christ. That God spoke to him through the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit. And that's another way that we know that Jesus is resurrected and is alive. Now, you remember the incident that made Paul unique among the apostles... His uniqueness was in his conversion. That Paul was on his road to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, and Jesus was already crucified. Jesus was in the grave. Jesus was risen from the grave. Jesus was ascended back to heaven. He's already back in heaven with the Father, and yet Jesus spoke to Paul. He came to him uh, on the road to Damascus in that bright, shining light where the glory of God shone round about him. Paul referred to that in 1 Corinthians 15.8, the scripture that we were just under discussion a moment ago. He said, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm saying this because there, there is no need for anyone to dispute Paul's comment and say that, well, he said the Lord said this, so we must be able to find 1 Corinthians 4, 15 to 17 somewhere in the Scripture, somewhere in the Gospel accounts that Jesus said this. We don't need to do that because Paul was spoken to by Jesus personally. These are words spoken to Paul as Jesus is the risen Lord who, who does speak to him through the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote that his letters or he wrote his letters with Holy Spirit inspiration. These are words that came from God. And so they're words of authority. So you don't need to make 
forced interpretations of parables like many people do, looking for things like this. You only need to know this. When Paul speaks the Word of God, he speaks the authority of Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for Christ in the epistles and you don't see any red letters in your red letter Bible, don't worry about that because when Paul speaks, that's God speaking. He's speaking under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now some of these things are mysteries that weren't revealed until the information was given to Paul and that's okay. We ought to be fine with that. Paul said to the Thessalonians here in this very letter that we're reading, he said, you're right, the word that you received from me, you received it as it is in truth, the word of God. That is also important because it gives us confidence that when we move into chapter 4, when Paul said, this is the word of God to you, this is what the Lord said to me, whatever that might be, you know in chapter 4, it is also the word of God. So what he says about the coming of Christ brings comfort to us because Jesus said these things. This is the word of God. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. And folks, that's the hope that we hold out for this text. I hold out this hope for it. I hope you do because you know it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said he would do. And Paul said because of what Jesus said he would do, comfort one another with these words. Now, I've got more to tell you about surviving saints, but if I preach much longer, most of you won't survive. Uh, you haven't had dinner, you may die of starvation, then everybody blames me because you're not alive at the coming of the Lord. So we're, we're going to end this sermon here, and uh, we're going to resume talking about this next Sunday morning and speak more about this wonderful coming of Jesus Christ. So rest assured that whether you live or die, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he went into the tomb, that he was raised by the glory of the Father, if you repent of your sins and you believe it, then you will see Christ and you will be a part of his glorious kingdom. So, you're one of the brethren that this letter was written to. Even with the very worst that can happen to you in your life, you can still be comforted with these words. This is why it's so important, why Paul wanted the Thessalonians to get the facts straight. You need to get the facts straight about the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's because there's comfort only in the truth of God's Word. God wants us to know the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for truth. Thanking you that we can read these things in your precious Word and know that uh, God Almighty Himself has given us this word to believe and to comfort our souls and to know that we're saved and we will be with Christ and reign with him forever and ever. Lord, help us to remember this. And as your word says, may this be the thing that causes us to live godly and holy lives, knowing that you could come at any time. We are to expect it, to anticipate it, and live like it, that today, tomorrow, very soon, we will see Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Help us to live in that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.